Uh, that kind of weather coming in, I heard that later this week or this weekend, it was going to get down in the evening to maybe 40 degrees. And of course, that's going to feel much cooler to us because we've been having nice warm weather. For lack of a better text, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 6, that's where we'll begin this evening. Genesis chapter 6. And our subject is grace, and tonight we're going to look at a little bit, just briefly, on all of these studies. We're just barely scratching the surface. We're going to look at covenant, Genesis chapter 6. Let's pray. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this beautiful day you have given us. We ask you to bless us in our understanding of your word as we seek to understand your marvelous and wonderful grace. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake, amen. So what I have done is make, made an acrostic out of our English word grace. G is goodness, R is righteousness, A is atonement, and C, which is where we are tonight, is covenant. Now, if you look in Genesis chapter 6, this is the very first mention of covenant. Chapter 6, verse 18, God says to Noah, I'm sending a flood, verse 17, upon the world, and I'm going to destroy all flesh. Verse 18, but with thee I will establish my covenant, and you will come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wife with you, and every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shall you bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. And he goes on and tells them about that. Verse chapter 9, chapter 9 of Genesis, and verse 9, chapter 9 and verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. Still talking to Noah. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you. Uh, verse 12, and God said this is the token of the covenant. This is the sign of the covenant. Verse 13, I do set my bow. This is the rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be for a token of a covenant. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you. Verse 16, and the bowl shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember my, the everlasting covenant between God and every, every living creature of all flesh that is upon the Earth, verse 17, and God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Now, I just had you read those passages to let you see how many times covenant is used, and it is first used in Genesis 6 and verse 18. Now, the triune God, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, determined 
And we're going to look at some of this. We can't get into it very deeply because of our time limitation. But the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, determined before the foundation of the world to save a number of people out of Adam's race. You must keep in mind that God does not live in time. There is no time with God. There's no sun up and sun down, January through December. There's no spring, summer, fall, and winter. There's no sequence of thoughts with God. We really need to have a, a study on the order of the decrees of God, and maybe we will do that. Be good study to uh, follow this. I've been teaching a little bit, just a little bit of light theological issues here on Tuesday night. Uh, so that's why we're dealing with subjects like this. Well, the, the Scripture teaches that God the Father chose those people. God the Son was purposed to redeem those people, and God the Spirit would call those people, and that is the basis of salvation. And again, I say, remember that God does not live in time. When we look at the Scripture, much of the time, the Scripture is written from the experience of man. So we're looking at the perspective of our experience of time, but there's no time with God. It, we are redeemed, as we have learned, we are redeemed because of the goodness of God. But God is so good that he will not, indeed he cannot, because of his holy nature, have anything to do with sin. And we learned that that's what brings about the R in righteousness. The righteous Lord loves righteousness. And because God is holy, everything he has anything to do with must also be holy. You have holy mountains, you have holy angels, you have the holy word of God, you have the holy son of God, you have the Holy Spirit on the front of your Bible that says holy Bible. Everything God identifies himself with is designated with that adjective, holy. Now, last week, we considered the A in grace, atonement, and we saw that the high priest made atonement for Israel on the day of Yom Kippur. The recent, most recent Yom Kippur was, was September 24th and September 25th, just recently here. And we saw how the high priest made atonement for Israel on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when he went into the Holy of Holies, which for them was the holiest place on earth. And we saw how he, he had two goats. He had a bull that he sacrificed for himself and for his family. And then he had two goats, and he would cast lots, and one lot would fall on this goat called the Lord's goat. And the other goat was called the scapegoat. And the Lord's goat would be slain, and its blood was put on the scapegoat. The scapegoat was led out by the priest through the people out into the wilderness and let go free. So that's a beautiful picture of our redemption, how that one goat takes the place of the other 
goat. This all happened on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The priest would have what was called, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. If he went into the Holy of Holies at any other time, God said, I'll kill you. You can only go in on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. And when you go in, he had to be fully dressed. He had to have already offered a sacrifice for himself, because he's a sinner too, and his family, which is, that's a picture of the truth that one sinner can't die for another sinner. So the, the, uh, the priest had to become ritually holy. He's a representative of Israel. He's going in to represent them. And so the priest would have on his head what was called a mitre. And on the mitre there was a, a gold plate on this golden crown. And on this gold plate, which was made of pure gold, printed across the front of it was holiness unto the Lord. So every place he turned and everything that he did in that Holy of Holies, on that holy day of Yom Kippur, everything he did, uh, he turned and it said holiness unto the Lord. Holiness unto the Lord. Sanctifying, at least in picture, everything that he did. Now I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 28. We've looked at this passage here in Genesis. So Exodus chapter 28, here's what we find here. This will give us a little bit more information, and I hope that I can at least finish what I have prepared for you tonight, but this is a little bit more involved study than what we've had in the previous three studies. Exodus chapter 28, you'll notice here in verse uh, 36, Exodus 28 and verse 36, And thou shalt offer every day a bullock, for a sin offering. Let me make sure I've got the right. I'm in the wrong chapter. All right, let me try it again. Here it is. Chapter 36. Thou shalt make a plate of gold, and uh, pure gold, and grave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. You see that? Holiness to the Lord. All right. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace, that it may be upon the mitre. Now, you know, in England, I think our, our forefathers were such rebels, they did everything backwards. How many of you have uh, a King James Version? Uh, well, you're going to have M-I-T-R-E. That's because it's E-R here. It's not R-E, it's E-R, M-I-T-E-R. But King James, 1611, they put the R because the E is silent. If you, if you just erase that E, you got mitre. <laughs> I might have done that and I might have done this. All right, so it says, the, the mitre upon the forefront of the mitre shall it be, this plate, verse 8, and it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, right here, Right over his mind, signifying his mind is holy. 
It shall be upon his forehead that Aaron may bear, watch this now, the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their gifts, and it shall be always upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You see, Aaron is not only a substitute, but he's the high priest symbolically talking to God and offering atonement to God and getting forgiveness of sins for God for those whom he represents. Of course, that's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did. You notice that it says in verse 38, it shall always, in other words, while he is in there doing all the things he does, that that plate must be there because everywhere he turns, he's turning to something that has to do with God and God is holy and he must be holy if he's going to face for somebody else, the Holy God. So he is ceremonially holy. Though the people he's representing were unholy, yet in their representative, the high priest, they were received as holy. That's why it says in verse 38 that it must always be upon his forehead that they, the people he's representing, may be accepted before the Lord. So going back now, G and grace is goodness. Only reason any sinner or any people saved the goodness of God. R is righteousness. There must be a righteous standard that is met. They must be a righteous people. A is atonement. We've looked at those. You can get those studies if you want them. So this tonight is something that talks to us about how those other things really come to bear in our salvation. They were accepted symbolically, Israel was, in their priest. And you notice that I just read for you, it says that the high priest is bearing the iniquity of the holy things. That is to say, He's not really holy, and the people he's representing is not holy. There's a burden to bear if anybody is going to have anything to do with the holy God, if he's going to have anything to do with them. So this holy plate was attached to the mitre across the brow of the high priest, indicating that in his mind and in his body and in his spirit, all that this man is doing before the Lord was holy, okay? So that the holy and righteous God, by righteous and holy offerings, could reconcile sinful people, okay? All of this, this covenant that we're talking to you about tonight, was agreed upon in an eternal covenant between the persons of the Godhead. So all who would ever be saved, all who would ever be redeemed, all who would ever be reconciled to God are included in that particular covenant. Now rather than have you look at all these passages, I'm going to have you look at some of them. 
But as we saw, Genesis 6.18 is the first mention of covenant. That is the Noahic covenant. That is the covenant with Noah. The Bible teaches us that the God of the Bible is a covenant-making God. Everything he does with regard to salvation has something to do with a covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, I'll tell you what, let's just go back there since you're in Exodus. It's not that hard to get back to Genesis 15. To show you some more references here, he made a covenant with Noah. There are different types of covenants, of course. Here's the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 15 and uh, verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, this is before his name was changed to Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now look at uh, chapter 17, if you will. Genesis chapter 17. We told in verse 1, Abraham is 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him. And he said, I'm almighty God, walk before me and be, be ye perfect, that is, be, 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 be sincere, be un, uh, upright. Verse 2, I will make my covenant between me and you. Verse 4, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you'll be a father of many nations. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Verse 9, And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore you and your seed after thee in their generation. Verse 10, This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you. And your seed after you, every man child among you shall be circumcised. Circumcision is the sign of the token of the covenant. Verse 11, you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token. There it is, a sign, a token of the covenant between me and you. Verse 13, he that is born in your house and that is brought up with your money must be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Verse 14, the uncircumcised man whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off. That doesn't mean killed. That means he's going to be put out from the people of God. He's not considered to be one of the children of God. He has broken my covenant. Verse 19 God said, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed. Thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Verse 21, my covenant I will, he says in verse 20, now I'm going to bless Ishmael. Now who's Ishmael? Ishmael is the father of all those folks that are over there bombing Israel now, the, the uh, Arab people. Ishmael is the father of those people. His father was Abraham, but his mother was Hagar, an Egyptian. He's half-brother to the Jews. Okay? So he says in verse, tw verse uh, 20, Ishmael, I'll bless Ishmael, I'll take care of him, because Abraham thought Ishmael was going to be the, 
the covenant seed, but he says, but, verse 21, my covenant I will establish with Isaac. I wish I could go into all the reasons why, but Isaac is the son that God gave Abraham. And he gave him that son when he was 99 years old and when Sarah was about 90. So that's a miracle, boy. That's something only God can do. And that's the only time God blesses something, when it's what he does, and there's no possibility of any man getting any glory for it. Okay? So, why did the Lord rescue Israel from Egypt? Let's go back to chapter 2 of Exodus. Exodus chapter 2. Why did the Lord rescue Israel from Egypt? Exodus chapter 2, let's see, verse uh, 24, And God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, and with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. He rescued them because he remembered his covenant. He had a covenant with Abraham, and they were the children of Abraham. God made a covenant with David called the Davidic Covenant. That's, we won't look at that tonight. That's 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 5. When David's getting ready to die, he says, My whole salvation is this covenant that God made with me. That's my whole salvation. He said that when he was dying. The Old Testament ends with a promise of sending one called the messenger of the covenant, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. The father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, you remember when the angel told Zacharias he and his wife were getting old and they hadn't had any children and he was in, he was in the temple doing his job and this angelic creature appeared to him and said, Zacharias, you and your wife are going to have a child. And Zechariah said, well, how do I know I'm going to have one? He said, i tell you how you're going to know. I'm going to shut your mouth. You ain't going to be able to say anything. <laughs> because he didn't believe the angel. He didn't believe the messenger from God. So God said, I'm going to make it where you can't talk. And when you say his name is John, you'll be, your tongue will be loosed and you'll be able to talk. So Zacharias, whose tongue had been bound because he didn't believe the angel who told him that he and his wife his elderly wife, and he was elderly too, would have a son. When he wrote, and you can read this in Luke chapter 1, verse 68 and 72, when he wrote on the tablet, they asked his wife, they said, what are you going to call him, little Zach? Going to call him little Zacharias? That's what they said. And he said, no. She said, we're going to call him John. He said, John? Well, there's nobody in your family named John. That sounds just like us today. Nobody, you don't have any relatives named John. What are you going to name John for? I tell you what, let's ask his dad. So they asked him. He couldn't talk. He said, give me a tablet. And he wrote on the tablet, his name is John. And as soon as he wrote that, his tongue was loosed. And you can read his whole word of praise there in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. And this is what he said in part of that word of praise, he said, quote, God has remembered his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, because the God of scripture 
is a covenant-making God. Now, the term covenant in the Old Testament comes from a Hebrew word, barith, and it means to cut. It doesn't have reference just to circumcision, but it has to do with cutting an agreement, making a promise. In the New Testament, believe it or not, the first time the word covenant is used, it's used of Judas Iscariot. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 15, when Judas covenanted with the chief priest to betray the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And that word there is histemi, and it means simply to establish something. In other words, they, they, they established the terms of agreement of his betraying the Lord. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 72, Zacharias that I just mentioned, the father of, of John the Baptist, the word that's used there is the word that's more commonly used in the New Testament, diatheke, and it means a setting forth of a testament. It's the same word that's used when you make your last will and testament. You determine what your will is, what your desire is about your estate. Now, there are different types of covenant. There is what we would call a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant. A conditional covenant is a covenant that God makes with people and he agrees to bless them with certain blessings, providing they meet certain conditions. Now, here I'm going to have to have you turn to a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11. Deuteronomy, chapter 11. I want you to see some of these passages. We can't look at all of them. But this one we should look at. Deuteronomy, chapter 11. A conditional covenant is when God agrees to bless with certain blessings, providing certain conditions are met. Now, you need to remember that all of the blessings of the law were conditional. All the blessings of the law were conditional. Deuteronomy chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 26 Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, once I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which ye have not known. So he says, I'm setting before you now the conditions of the covenant. This is a conditional thing. If you obey, blessings. If you disobey, curses. Now, what was the problem with the Jews' understanding of a conditional covenant? The problem was they limited the conditions to outside, overt keeping of it. So Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 5 and he says, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time that you shouldn't commit adultery. All the Jews stood there and chest. Yeah, well, brother, I'm safe on that one. I'm safe on that one. He said, but I say unto you 
Ye have heard that hath been said by them of old time is a phrase that he uses several times in what we call the Beatitudes to refer to the rabbinical teachings. The, what the rabbis have told you is don't commit adultery. But they didn't go far enough. I say unto you, if you look on a woman to lust after her in your heart, you have broken that law. Now I told you two or three weeks ago, of course, literally going out with somebody and committing adultery is worse than thinking about it. Of course it is. But he went on to say murder. He said, you've been heard, it has been said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. But he said, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother in your heart without a cause, you are guilty of murder, of the spirit of murder. Of course it's worse to go out and murder him, actually murder him, than to think about murdering. What I, what I want you to see is the Jews misunderstood the law because they limited the law to external, overt, outward conduct. But God goes all the way to the thoughts and intents of the heart. You not only do the right thing, you, most of you are not going to remember when I taught this, it was several years ago, but when you, when you try to go to heaven by the law, you not only have to do the right thing, you have to have a joyful attitude when you do it, or it's not accepted. It's not accepted. You can't be groaning and moaning and complaining about, oh, but I think this is a little hard here. So, so there's no way in the world you can meet the conditions of the law of God. You can't meet them. That's why we have to have a Savior. And that word that uh, Zacharias uses uh, is a word, diatheke, which means setting forth the will of God. So the conditional covenant is a covenant that always has a condition to it. And if you meet the condition... In word, thought, and deed, you can expect the blessing. The Jewish people thought that they were meeting those conditions. In Deuteronomy chapter 27, God says to Israel through Moses, Look, when you go into the promised land, when you get ready to go in, before you go in, I want you to take, you're going to be between these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And on Mount Ebal, I want you to put six men from six tribes of Israel up there on that mountain. And on Mount Gerizim, I want you to put six men up here. Mount Ebal will be the mountain of cursing, and Mount Gerizim will be the cursing, the, the mountain of blessing. And now I'm going to read all of these curses. And when I read them, all of you who are on Mount Ebal, you say amen to it. God says, if you do this and you do that, I'll curse your going out and I'll curse your coming in. I'll curse the fruit of your womb. I'll curse your donkey. I'll curse your fields. I'll curse everything you've got. And you have to say amen behind every one of them. It's read. It, you can read it in Deuteronomy 27. What you do is you read that and you give you a new appreciation of what Christ bore for us. And then when you read all these blessings... The people on Mount Gerizim will say amen to that. An unconditional covenant is when God promises to do or not do something and there are no conditions to be met. Just like all of the promises regarding salvation 
with the law or conditional, you meet the conditions and you get the prize. But if you don't meet the conditions, you get the curse. So all of the promises in the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those made in the covenant we're interested in were unconditional insofar as we are concerned. There were conditions to be met, but they were met by our high priest. They were met by our substitute. They were met by our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who acted as the high priest, who acted as the substitute, whose blood was offered up to God in the holy place uh, on our behalf. Sometimes we, we talk about unilateral, U-N-I-lateral, and bilateral covenants. Uni means one, bi means two, and you have kind of the, this idea in a unilateral covenant. A unilateral covenant is a covenant where God says, I will and you will. A bilateral covenant is when God says, I will, if you will. If you will do this, I will do that. That's really about the same thing as the conditional covenant. You keep all the conditions and you get the blessing. Now, a unilateral covenant is of one. Tell me this. When God chose to save Noah and all the animals in the ark, according to Genesis chapter 6, did he come down and say, Now, Noah, I will save you if you will build an ark. No, you can't find that anywhere. He just came down and he said, A flood's coming. I want you to build an ark. And I'm going to condemn the world and I'm going to drown everything in it. But I'm going to save you and your wife and your three sons and their three wives and these animals. That was a, an unconditional covenant. That was a unilateral covenant. There weren't any conditions to meet. He said, this is what I want you to do, and Noah did it. And Noah is used in the New Testament as an example of the grace of God through faith. We know that Noah believed God because he got busy building the boat, and it was 120 years before that flood came. Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. So everything he did for 120 years was the testimony to his generation that a flood was coming, and he believed God. The same thing with Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 18. God didn't come down and say, I'm God, Abraham, and if you would like to, I will. he didn't do anything. He just called Abraham. He called him with an effectual calling. And when God calls with an effectual calling, you will respond. He didn't come down and say, Abraham, I've, I've chosen you, and if you'd like to do this, do that. No. This was an unconditional, unilateral covenant. Now, all covenants made in time with men and with nations and with people reflect the everlasting covenant made in eternity between the persons of the Godhead. So let's again remember how the Old Testament closes, if you go back when you have time, read Malachi chapter 3, you'll see that it closes by talking about the messenger of the covenant that the Lord said he was going to send. Well, in the gospel of Luke, 
Luke presents the birth of our Savior as the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Let's look in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1. And we'll just put it back in the context of where we were. They said in verse 59, on the eighth day, they took the child to circumcise him, and you had to have an official name. And they were going to name him Zacharias after the name of his father. That's verse 59. And his mother said, no, 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 his name should be called John. And verse 61, they said, there's none of your kin, none of your family is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, verse 62, how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table, and he wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled, and his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue was loosed, and he spake, and he began to praise God, and fear came on all those round about them. All these things were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child is this child going to be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zacharias, verse 67, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. His son is John the Baptist. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. All of this is part of this word of praise inspired by the Holy Spirit from Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Okay? Now, you can see this thing of the covenant all the way through the prophets. And this Zacharias said, as all of your holy prophets have said, the Old Testament prophet spoke of the everlasting covenant that was all fulfilled in Christ. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. If you go to Acts chapter 3, we're almost through for this evening, all I can say to you this evening. Acts chapter 3, this is the Acts of the Apostles. The actions of the apostles, it tells us how they went about carrying out the uh, instructions and commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we get to the book of Acts, we get to <clears throat> chapter 3, in Acts chapter 3, and we read in verse 20, He shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. You see, the Jewish people missed it. They are like when you're riding down an interstate and you see mountain ranges ahead of you, and those mountains look like they're like this, but when you get down the road, they're separated 10 to 15, 20 miles. So when they looked into the Old Testament, they saw one coming of the Messiah. Just like you think there's one mountain here and it's, it's, they're separated by miles. So when they read in the scriptures, they didn't see that the Messiah was going to come as a lowly servant, which is what Jesus did, and then he's going to come back as the king. They thought the Messiah was going to come uh, the one time and he was going to establish Israel on First Avenue and everybody else would have a little cabin in the corner of glory land. And Jesus kept telling them. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus told them over and over and over again, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, he must be betrayed, he must die. And the Scripture keeps saying they didn't know what he's talking about. They didn't understand what he's talking about until after it happened. Then they began to put things in place. They had the Spirit of God. Jesus told them, He that is with you shall be in you. And he sent the Spirit, of course, on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival that occurs 50 days after Passover. When all of those Jews were gathered in Jerusalem, that's when he sent the Spirit and saved 3,000 of them. How many people did God kill at Mount Sinai? He killed 3,000. How many did he save on the day of Pentecost? Saved 3,000. Under the New Covenant, he saved them. Under the Old Testament, he killed them because they broke the law and they didn't have an intercessor. Okay? So in chapter 3 and in verse 20, we read that in verses 20 and 21. Now we'll go down to verse 24. All the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these things. He's talking to these Jews now. And you're the children of the prophets, and you're of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So he says that this covenant that was made in Abraham, which reflected what the persons of the Godhead did before the foundation of the world, has been spoken of by all the prophets. This covenant between the persons of the Godhead reflected in the covenants made with Noah and Abraham and David and so on in time. God the Father chose a number which no man can number. That's the G in grace. That's his goodness. He didn't have to choose anybody. I remember a man, you probably have heard this. I remember a man who had a problem that said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And he said, I got a real problem with that. And uh, he said, what's your problem? Well, he said, you know, says, Esau have I hated. Oh, he said, well, I don't have a problem with that. He said, well, I have a problem with him loving Jacob. 
Because Jacob was just as big a sinner as Esau was. Might have been a bigger sinner. Jacob was the one who tried to deceive his father and all of that stuff. The G in grace is goodness. The R in grace is righteousness. Christ, the Son, became man to become the substitute of his people. And in the person of a perfect man, a righteous man with no fault in him, he was examined by heaven and by men for 33 years. Now, when they put up that Passover lamb before the Lord let Egypt, uh, let Israel out of Egypt, blood had to be shed. The Exodus, that's about redemption. That's being freed from bondage. You understand? Can't, but couldn't be freed until blood was shed. So the lamb, the lamb's blood was shed before any redemption could take place. Okay? So the R in, in grace is righteousness, and that points to Christ as the perfect man who, like that lamb, before they slew the lamb, uh, and put the blood on the doorpost, and God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. They had to examine that lamb, and there couldn't be any blemishes or any problems with it. And Jesus was examined for 33 years, at least 33. Somewhere between 33 and 34 years, he was examined, and over and over and over again, God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And men, even Herod, said, I find no fault in it. Couldn't find any fault in him. So he was proven to be spotless and no fault. He was a man, but he was God, the Son. He obeyed all that the law demanded. As a man, he did what the law demands of us. Then he became the sacrificial lamb of the Passover lamb. He was also the high priest, as we've already seen. He represented us in the Holy of Holies in heaven. He's the prophet. What does the prophet do? The prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. The prophet says, thus saith the Lord. What does the priest do? The priest goes to God on behalf of the people to make atonement. What does the king do? Prophet, priest, and king. The king rules the people of God. All three offices are in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the prophet, he's the priest, and he's the king. He's the high priest, and he's the offering that the high priest made. And he's the intercessor. You remember in John chapter 17, this high priestly prayer of Christ, he says to the Father in heaven, I have unto those that you gave me. When did, when did God the Father give them to him? In eternity past. Of those you have given me, I have lost none but the son of perdition, which was Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Christ the Son became man to pay the penalty. So by entering into the covenant, he became responsible for them. Responsible for their sins responsible for their salvation, responsible for their blessings. All the blessings that we have are because of what Christ did, not because of what we do. He not only 
saves us, but he must keep us. He preserves us. And this is the real reason behind his death on the cross. The broken law demanded atonement. That's the A in grace. And so if you'll turn to Romans 5, and I'll close here tonight. We've already looked at Romans 5 in a previous study, and I opened that up, so I won't say much about that tonight. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verse 6. When we were without strength, without strength to keep the law, without strength to do any good, without strength to save ourselves. In due time, Christ died for godly people. No, he died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Perhaps for a good man, son would dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? Now, if when we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What does that mean, saved by his life? Well, it might mean the life he lived in this world. What did he do in this world? He kept the law completely, but this has reference to his life now. He is alive. He is at the right hand of God. He makes intercession for all who come unto God by him, by his life. And not only so, verse 11, but we joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received. And I pointed out to you that this is not a good translation if it says atonement. It's the word for reconciliation. We are reconciled to God you, you remember what I told you about the word atonement? I say this for some of you who were not here. The English word atonement has A-T. What is that word? At. Then it has O-N-E. That's one. And then it has meant. At one meant. It takes two parties that are separated and brings them together as one. That's reconciliation. That is what our Lord Jesus Christ did. The law was a conditional covenant. It promised salvation upon the condition of perfect obedience. And he kept the law to involve us in an unconditional covenant so far as we are concerned, but conditional so far as Christ is concerned. He had to meet all the conditions on our behalf. He represented us. He had no sin. He did no sin. So all he did was for his people. He was virgin born, so he didn't have any sin. So everything that he earned, he gives to those who come to him and trust in him. So the old covenant stood upon law. The new covenant stands upon promises. John chapter 1, verse 17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Last passage, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. See if you can find the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, wish we had time to really open this up, but not tonight. He says to the professing children of God that he's writing to, he says, now you have not come, verse 18, you have not come to the mount 
the mountain of uh, Mount Sinai that burned with fire, that was black, darkness, tempest, the sound of a trumpet, verse 19, the voice of words, once voice they heard, and they entreated Moses that the voice should not be spoken to them anymore. For, verse 20, they could not endure that once was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched that mountain, it would be stoned or thrust through with a dart. Verse 21, and so terrible was the sight that Moses himself said, I exceedingly fear and quake. He said, you haven't come to that mountain. What you've come to is to Mount Zion. Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion. You see, we have two mountains here. We have Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Now, I remember an old friend of mine, after he came to understand the gospel and the new covenant, he said to one of his church members, he said, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my fire. And his church member said, no, you still got the fire. You're just getting it from a different mountain. You're not getting it from Mount Sinai. You're getting it from Mount Zion. So he said, you've come to Mount Zion, verse 22, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, not the earthly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the what? The new covenant. The new covenant. I really ought to bring you a study, I'll have to do it later, on the continuity and discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. But I can't do that tonight. So he says... Just in case you think that just because it's Mount Zion, uh, Mount Zion, you can let up. No, no. He said anything of going back now is far more serious than it was for Mount Sinai because now you're dealing with God's Son. Verse 25. If, if you refuse not him that, see that you do not refuse him that speaks. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him, this speaks from heaven. So God now speaks from heaven through his own son. All right, chapter 13. This will have to be the last one. Chapter 13. Now sometimes close uh, our services with a benediction from this verse. Uh, chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace... It brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. He makes you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, he calls this the everlasting covenant. Covenant. It means that God is not going to make out any more covenants. This is the last one. And that last covenant was sealed with the blood of Christ. If you compared it to a last will and testament, and he covers this in the book of Hebrews, he says a testament doesn't come in force until the testator dies. So this, this everlasting covenant, which harkens back before the foundation of the world, didn't come in 
to power into play until the testator died, and the testator is the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the final covenant. This is the covenant that lasts forever. Uh, this is where our salvation is. So God, in His goodness, sent His Son to earn a righteousness and to give righteousness to His holy law through the atonement in order to fulfill the covenant that was made before the foundation of the world. And that's the G and the R and the A and the C. And next week we'll look a little bit at the, the E, which is election. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, how we praise you and thank you that you, being a holy God, found a way to have mercy upon sinners, that he that believeth in Jesus is not condemned and you remain just because we fulfill the law through our substitute and our high priest. In our high priest we offer a perfect offering that takes away all of our sin. We know that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, but this man, when he had offered himself one offering forever, sat down, on the right hand of the power on high, there to wait until all that he intends to save are made his footstool. Come to him and give him the glory. We thank you that we have a hope that we're among that number. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for his sake. Amen.